Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, July the 29th, uh, 2023. And we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in this program, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the military coup in the West African state of Niger and its impact on African and Western states. The Russia-Africa Summit was held uh, over the last few days in St. Petersburg, where issues related to food insecurity, neocolonialism, and the Ukraine war were discussed. The Ethiopian Human Rights Commission has reported on its work inside the Horn of Africa state, and the African Union and the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, has sent a delegation to Liberia to monitor preparations for the upcoming national elections. In the second hour, we look at the recent military coup in Niger and its significance in the broader regional and international context. We then examine some of the developments surrounding the Russia-Africa Summit in St. Petersburg. Finally, we look back on the mass struggles of African Americans six decades ago in the pivotal year of 1963. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of Gambia with Sona Jubarte. This is from the album entitled Bandinya Kumur. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Bologna, Cabo Wole, 
And uh, coming up, uh, we're going to bring you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. And, of course, our lead story, Pan-African Newswire uh, today, uh, deals uh, with the current uh, situation in the West African state of Niger, uh, where a military coup d'etat took place uh, just three days ago. The European Union has said it is suspending financial support and cooperation on security with Niger following this week's military coup, as the African Union called on the coup's military leaders to return to their barracks. The commander of Niger's presidential guard, General Abdurrahman Shiani, on uh, yesterday declared himself the head of a transitional government after his soldiers took President Mohamed Bazoum into custody on Wednesday. In addition uh, to the immediate succession of budget support, all cooperation actions in the domain of security are suspended indefinitely with immediate effect. Uh, EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell said in a statement earlier today, according to its website, the European Union has allocated 503 million euros, that's 554 million U.S. dollars, from its budget to improve governance, education, and sustainable growth in this year over the 2021 through the 2024 period. And uh, other news uh, from the West African state of Niger, a Russian organization affiliated with the Wagner Mercenary Group uh, shared a message apparently from its boss, uh, Yevgeny Pogosin, who said the events in Niger were part of the nation's fight against colonizers. The Officers' Union for International Security, considered by Washington to be a front company for Wagner in the Central African Republic on two days ago uh, in during the evening shared a message attributed to Bogosian. While the voice in the audio message resembles that of Bogosian, the Asian France press was unable to confirm its authenticity. Bogosian has been out of the public eye since the organization uh, was reported to have engaged in a short-lived rebellion against the Russia's top military brass this took place just last month, according to this message, purportedly from Pogosian, although not authenticated, says what happened in Niger is nothing more than the struggle of the people of Niger against colonizers who tried to impose their own rules of life. The message noted former colonizers are trying to keep the people of African countries in check and fill these countries with terrorists and various gangs, creating a colossal security crisis. The statement went on to say in order to maintain their actual slave system in the territories of these states, they deploy various foreign missions, which number tens of thousands of soldiers. The statement attributed to Pogosin said it added that uh, these tens of thousands of soldiers are not capable of protecting the population of sovereign states. The populations are suffering. Wagner has for years been a major player in the security sphere in some African countries, but its overseas operations have been called into question by leaders uh, who, of course, are aligned uh, with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And if you will, later on in our program, uh, we'll have more detailed information on developments in Niger. And you can also read the Pan-African Newswire to stay abreast of developments uh, in Niger and in other African states. Russia-Africa summit uh, has taken place uh, in St. Petersburg. 
The Russian President Vladimir Putin has proposed Russian language schools across the African continent, addressing African leaders at the second Russia-Africa summit just two days ago. Putin has pledged Russia's support in developing secondary and higher education uh, institutions on the continent. Uh, He said uh, he would also be increasing the number of African students who will be sponsored by his government for study at the universities to 4,700. There's a long history of Africa receiving tertiary education at Russian institutions. Now, Putin said Russia also wants to help Africa to develop both higher and vocational education. He said Russia is ready to help train teachers and technical specialists at a basic education and vocational level. Putin said pedagogical methods for joint Russia-Africa schools have already been developed. With Russian assistance, 28 African countries will open education centers for training preschool, primary, and high school teachers. Putin also wants to increase the number of students in Russian higher educational institutions from 35,000. Over 10,000 of these students are being trained in medicine and other health-related fields. Putin said over the last three years, the number of African students who are being sponsored by the Russian government to study abroad has more than doubled. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, following the conflict in in the northern part of Ethiopia, the United Nations Human Rights Council, despite Ethiopia's contention, established the International Commission of Human Rights Experts on Ethiopia. That was done in December of 2021. The ICHREE was first established with the mandate to conduct an unbiased investigation into claims of violations and abuses committed in Ethiopia since November 2020 by all conflicting parties. It was also mandated to establish the facts and circumstances surrounding the alleged violations and abuses to gather and preserve evidence to identify those responsible where possible and to make such information available and usable in support of ongoing and future accountability. Subsequently, in December of 2022, the mandate of the commission was extended for another year, though the conflict in the northern part of Ethiopia was over following the signing of the secession of hostilities agreement in Pretoria on November the 2nd of 2023, November the 2nd of 2022. And following uh, the signing of the peace agreement, there's been a significant progress in instituting transitional justice policy and encouraging consolidation of peace and stability in the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. Besides the signing of the peace deal, enhanced the provision of humanitarian assistance, the resumption of essential services, implementation of disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration DDR program, and the reconstruction and recovery of conflict-affected areas. Furthermore, Ethiopia established a ministerial task force that implements the recommendations from the Joint joint Investigation of Ethiopian Human Rights Commission and the United Nations Office of High Commissioners for Human Rights. And uh, finally, uh, in this segment uh, of our program, a joint pre-election fact-finding mission deployed to the West African state of Liberia ahead of the country's presidential and legislative elections by the Economic Community of West African States and the African Union, uh, extended its exercise 
Now, this happened uh, earlier today. The mission, which began from Sunday, the 23rd to the 29th, July of 2023, is to assess the country's state of preparedness for the polls slated for October the 10th uh, later this year. A statement copied to the Ghana News Agency said the mission was co-led by Professor Akihiro Jaga, former chairman of the Independent Nigerian Electoral Commission for ECOWAS and Ambassador Kalixi Mbari, head of democracy, elections, and constitutionalism of the AU Commission. Other members of the mission are Ambassador Haja Alari Cole, member of the ECOWAS Council of the Weiss, Mrs. John Menza, chairperson of the Electoral Commission of Ghana, and Mr. L.C. Wadriago, chairman of the Independent National Electoral Commission of Burkina Faso. The rest are Mr. Mohammed Suleiman Issa, Deputy Ambassador of Nigeria to ECOWAS, Dr. Syriak Agnaketum, ECOWAS Director of Peace and Regional Security. It also has a joint technical team from ECOWAS and the African Union Commissions. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to... uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. This is the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. Uh, the music of uh, the legendary Minnie Ripperton uh, from her first album uh, released in 1970 entitled Come to My Garden. Uh, that track was entitled Rainy Day in Centerville. And, of course, the news uh, just this last past week uh, was the military coup d'etat in the West African state of Niger. Niger is a mineral-rich uh, state. Uh, it has uh, gold. It also has substantial deposits of uranium. The government there uh, for many years has been a close ally of the United States Africa Command, uh, the Pentagon uh, Command Unit uh, for uh, the African Union member states region, and uh, also a very close ally of its former colonial power of France. Uh, the coup d'etat uh, this week has created tremendous amounts of trepidation and uncertainty uh, within uh, the Western industrialized states, such as the U.S. and the European Union. Let's listen to a report 
on uh, developments in Niger uh, over the last uh, three days. Another coup in West Africa. Soldiers in Niger have seized power and removed the democratically elected president. What does it mean for the fight against armed groups in the Sahel? And how do recurrent military takeovers triple democracy in Africa? This is Inside Story. Hello, welcome to the program. I'm Sahil Rahman. Niger's president, Mohamed Barzoum, was elected two years ago in the first peaceful democratic transfer of power since independence in 1960. But on Wednesday, members of his own presidential guard removed him from office. The coup leaders say they want to prevent further economic and security problems. Niger's neighbours, Mali and Burkina Faso, have seen four military takeovers since 2020. So what does this mean? for Western countries who have increasingly relied on Niger as a base of operations against armed groups in the Sahel. And with the Wagner Group mercenaries already active in several African nations, will these developments increase Russia's influence on the continent? We'll be discussing all of this in a few moments with our guests, but first, this report from Victoria Gatenby. Soldiers surround Niger's national television station in the capital, Niamey as well as the residence of President Mohamed Bazoum. Hours later, they announced the president's removal. We, the Security Defense Forces, gathered at the National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, have decided to put an end to the regime you know. This follows the continuous deterioration of the security situation and poor social and economic management. The United Nations, African Union, Regional Bloc, ECOWAS and the United States have all demanded Bazoum's reinstatement. The United States resolutely supports him as the democratically elected president of Niger. We call for his immediate release. We condemn any effort to seize power by force. Bazoum's inauguration two years ago was the first peaceful transfer of power between democratically elected leaders since the country gained independence from France in 1960. When Al Jazeera spoke to Bazoum last year, he was optimistic about the future. I think the difficulties are behind us. We succeeded in a democratic change of power. I symbolize a hope, simply a hope for the end of the ethnic issues and the relationship to power. Niger is one of the world's poorest nations. For decades, it struggled with drought and food shortages, which has led to unrest and ethnic conflict. But more recently, Niger has faced another challenge, the rise of armed groups and an increase in attacks in the Sahel region. Frustrations about the worsening insecurity has been a driving force for coups. Neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso have seen four military takeovers in the past three years. I think there's a real question that Washington has to be asking itself right now. If, after all of this money and attention and engagement and assistance, if we cannot keep Niger on a democratic path, then what are we doing wrong? Since Mali and Burkina Faso ordered foreign troops to leave last year, France and the U.S. have increasingly relied on Niger as a base of operations against ISIL and al-Qaeda affiliates. Russian mercenaries are also active in the Sahel. The consequences of the coup will be felt far beyond Niger's borders, raising doubts about the resilience of democratic governments in a region plagued by instability. 
Victoria Gatenby for Inside Story. Well, for more on this, I'm joined now in the Nigerian capital of Abuja is Kabir Adamu, the managing director of Beacon Consulting, a security risk management and intelligence firm that operates in the Sahel. In Paris is Nicholas Norbrook, the managing editor of the Africa Report magazine, which covers pan-African politics and business. And in London, Alex Vines, director of the Africa program at Chatham House. A warm welcome to all of my guests. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Story. Uh, Kabir Adamu, can I come to you first in Abuja? Um, Niger is not the first, and I doubt it's not going to be the last country to experience a coup in the region. They happen pretty often. But what's going wrong here? Thank you. Um, so uh, what the coup plotters have, have announced that their reasons, um, they've, they've mentioned two things, um, security and the economy. Um, however, the reality uh, of what we see in both Niger and other countries is that um, when the military take over, they are not able to address these two issues. Um, in terms of what is actually happening on ground, sadly, the Sahel region and most parts of West Africa are being afflicted by different um, threat elements, especially the influence of non-state armed groups that are ideologically based. So in particular, there are several um, ideological groups that are affiliated with the global um, terrorist groups, um, IS, Islamic State, that out of Al-Qaeda. And Niger is not, um, you know, spared out. It it also has its own share of um, influence of of these groups. So to an extent, yes, security is a challenge. Um, And then, of course, the economy, too. Uh, The influence, what happened after COVID-19, and then, of course, the impact of um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine are being felt by countries in the Sahel and West Africa. So all of these are realities. But sadly, the claim that the military will be in a better position to address that has not been factual. Indeed, we'll delve into that uh, as we continue with the conversation. Nicholas Norbrook uh, in Paris, let's just start with the initial rumours uh, of the appointment of a, a new presidential guard, which seems to have been the flashpoint for uh, the coup or the rebellion, however we want to describe it. It seems to have spread much wider to the, the military to a full-blown coup. Is that a fair assessment that this was simmering all the time or it has come as a complete shock? I think it came as a shock to President Brazil. Even uh, last night, he was sending up text messages saying um, the other elements of the army will be here soon. It's just the presidential guard which is involved uh, in this coup. Um, so I think he and uh, a lot of other people are fairly surprised uh, at the widespread nature of it. We understand um, elements of the police are involved as well as um, most of the army, and of course, this presidential guard, which ironically has had a great deal of adventure, uh, rather a great deal of investment put into it over the last few decades to try and uh, stave off uh, the coup attempts which uh, have plagued Niger since uh, it gained its independence in the 60s. So uh, let's cross over to Alex Vines and I'll develop that because obviously, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? You invest so much in your military and in your security because you are a a big player uh, in the region to try and not just defend your own country, but your borders. And that very group of people, Alex, turn on you. Uh, Are you surprised at the way things have happened so very quickly? 
No, we, we, we've seen a pattern here. So um, you're absolutely right. One of the problems in the Sahelian area is that there's been a lot of investment in, in security. Uh, and so building up um, presidential guards, I mean, you can call them Praetorian guards. The, the presidential guard in Niger is 2,000 strong. Uh, and so the, the, the unintended consequence is that uh, the one institution that, that is well-resourced uh, and is, is better trained is, is the military and particularly the, the kind of elite units. Uh, and the unintended consequence of this is that, that you, you turn fragile straits into brittle ones uh, and you start to get uh, a very frustrated uh, broader population and interest groups encouraging the military to stage a coup. Now, you know, they, they all claim they're for peace, security, fair play, justice and equity. But what we're also seeing, and there's a very good UNDP report that was launched two weeks ago that interviewed 8,000 people across these countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, where there's been coups, um, on, on what people actually want ultimately. And it is about a better economy. It's about better security. The only good news is that the end goal is better democracy. Uh, but the interviews show a lot of buyer's remorse because uh, as your previous speaker said, the, the, the military is just not equipped to, to pr provide, you know, better security long term uh, and certainly not democracy. Yeah, well, we'll talk about security and democracy and certainly finances just a little bit later. One more question to Kabir uh, Adamu about sort of the current situation, the swiftness of the coup. I mean, you heard Alex there saying he wasn't surprised from, from the analysis that Chatham House has. From where you are in Abuja and in West Africa. Uh, is Nigeria surprised by what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, given the statement by the president, who is the current um, chairman of ECOWAS, uh, immediately after the news emerged, he issued a statement. He followed that by sending out a delegation. So yeah, it, it appears he is surprised. And um, I mean, there, there is discussion also around what has been described as the colossal failure of intelligence. Um, uh, I mean, those uh, putting that forward talked about Sudan, how um, Sudan happened, and it appears the intelligence um, capabilities of not just African countries, but Western countries too, were either unaware or were caught off guard. So the same thing with this development in Niger. It appears that, um, you know, the state institutions um, and the debate channels that the intelligence platforms represent were probably not um, aware or not ready for such, such a development. And that's why we saw um, a, a visit from an ECO, fellow ECOWAS um, you know, leader to the Nigerian president, and then the result of that was the delegation. But more significantly was the inability of the delegation that was sent by the president to prevent the total collapse of the government in Niger, and more importantly, to also secure the release of um, the uh, elected president, of, because uh, as it were, he's still in detention at the moment. So, yeah, um, it appears the, the Nigerian state and, and the ECOWAS chair, because of course it's the, president, the Nigerian president that is occupying that, were uh, unaware of that uh, the development in Niger. Sure. Uh, Nicholas, uh, let's go back to you in Paris. I mean, you know, corruption, greed, the temptation of absolute power, uh, and the phrase absolute power corrupts. I mean, what is it? What is it that attracts the military to think they can do a better job than, than democratically elected officials, be they good or bad? They are still democratically elected by the people. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one. I, just to pick up on, on a previous point on the, on the failure of intelligence, it's 
it's all the more surprising when the man who's believed to be behind this putsch, uh, General Abdurrahman Chiani, who is the head of this Praetorian Guard, presidential guard that we've been speaking about, um, he, he's known about, he's a, he's a known quantity. And when um, President Bazoum's successor, Isufu, handed, was about to hand over the, the, the presidential chair, um, two days before the inauguration, there was an attack on the presidency. And there were rumors that this um, General Chiani was behind it then, rumors which have never really been dispelled. Um, so it is, it is surprising that share intelligence, that um, partner intelligence agencies have not been able to, to catch it. Um, in, in terms of you know, what, what these um, military uh, elites believe they're, they're doing, it's, it's very hard to tell, but it, it, it does seem that the, the consequences for their actions uh, are not really being felt, or at least they, they don't feel much deterrence, either from um, Western partners who have poured in a lot of cash, and there was a visit in February, I believe, by UK Minister for Africa. There was a visit by uh, Anthony Blinken, US Secretary of State, in March. Uh, in April, the, the German defense minister was there. So there's been an incredible amount of uh, money poured into the military, but no, no deterrence felt from there. And no deterrence felt from the, re from the region. There was a time when Nigeria was considered the gendarme of, of West Africa. Um, that, that's no longer the case, clearly. No, it isn't. I mean, Alex Vines, uh, as you analyse uh, the way we've seen so many coups in that region in, in, in the last, you know, four to five years, you know, we think of Mali, we think of Burkina Faso. I mean, where do groups like ECOWAS and the African Union stand in, in sort of trying to encourage nation building? Yes, they may be focused on the economy. They may be focused as groups that deal with the politique of countries, but they also have a responsibility to maintain that level of uh, hope of democracy, don't they? Hope of bringing countries forward post-colonial periods. Yeah, so it, it's definitely a concern. As you mentioned, since 2020, we've had seven coups and three attempted coups. But those are really confirmed ones and, and maybe a bunch of others. Uh, I, I would kind of say that ECOWAS is trying, you know, we've got a new Tanubu administration, so a new Nigerian president who has a vision for the region, cares about his near abroad, is looking at how he rebuilds the regional economic community. I was in Abuja myself only a couple of weeks ago. There was a summit about these particular issues. They were really concerned about Niger in particular, as well as Burkina Faso and what to do with Mali. So I wouldn't say there's been a complete intelligence uh, failure here. There were concerns around elite disputes inside Niger, particularly between the current President, uh, President Bazoum and his predecessor, President Usufu, who was uh, much more closely aligned with General Omar Chiani. I'm not sure I agree that Chiani was involved in the, the attempt of the March 2021 coup. I think he actually stopped it. So, so um, the, 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 you know, going forward, it's about how can the economic community of West African states become more effective, more efficient, 
and really not just be condemning coups but with, with, with words but actually with actions and I think that, that's you know that's what's been drawn out really urgently now uh, with Niger because Niger is not just strategic and important for the West uh, it's equally important for Nigeria and and so uh, a lot of focus is now being put on to how to convince the putschists to, to, to back down, basically. That's what's going on right at the moment. Uh, Kabir Adamu in Abuja, um, the modus operandi, certainly, uh, of the situation seems to reflect what we've seen in the region. I'll ask Nicholas the same sort of, uh, the answer to this question as well, but I'll start with you, Kabir, first. It starts off, I'm just going to quickly, briefly summarise it. Military takeover, borders close. Military officers address the nation, regional bodies like the AU condemn the coup. Sanctions are put in place, delegations sent in to talk, delegations free the president who goes into exile, military remain in uh, power, promise elections that never really happen openly. Regional bodies lift sanctions, Western countries that condemn the action, restore diplomatic and economic relations, the end. It seems to be going partly to script. Exactly, and I, and I think this is just to relate it to your earlier question on what kind of the incentive for these military officers to take over government. Sadly, we haven't seen any consequences in almost all the six um, you know, take, uh, coups that have happened from 2020 till date. We haven't seen any direct consequences on the. Uh, Nicholas, can I bring you in here in Paris? I mean, you were smiling at what I had to say, but I think that's the reality, isn't it? This is what we've seen repeated again and again. Alex is also nodding in agreement, so I think we're all on the same page here. Absolutely. It, 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 the script you outlined um, is eerily accurate, um, and I, I don't know if there's a, any shortcut to it. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't remove agency, though, from um, those delegations, and you know, I absolutely take the point that the, the Tinubu administration may have much more force than the Buhari administration, uh, which ran Nigeria for the previous eight years, had. But, but certainly when President Basanjo was in charge uh, and Nigeria was very comfortable projecting military force in the region, that script wasn't really adhered to. And, and sometimes uh, food plotters found themselves taste violently out of office, um, which, you know, while you can't, you know, uh, allow violence of any sort, um, that kind of um, sense of there, there might be retribution, you know, just carry mm. a certain kind of weight in the region for, for a few years. So we can only hope that we will see a different script emerge and that local actors, don't forget, Nigeria is, two-thirds of the economy of West Africa it is a, a serious player. Yeah. Um, and if Nigeria's foreign policy became, becomes much more muscular, I think maybe that script can be flipped. Yeah. Uh, Alex, you were nodding in agreement as well through that. It's a big difference. That you've got a lot more ambition. That, that Basically, the new Nigerian foreign policy of Tanubu that's being drawn up at the moment is a, is a robust response against putschists. There's one thing that Tanubu and the incoming officials that are beginning to emerge around him that, or, or that they have common vision, and that's they don't like military dictatorships. They all learned their craft when, when uh, they're dealing with opposing the Abacha administration in, in, in Nigeria. 
So this is a very different Nigeria, and I think this is where the putschists in, in Niamey may have miscalculated. The big neighbor next door is going to be a lot more proactive and a, more, a lot more influential than, than, than Western partners, be they France, the EU, or, 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 or the United States. If we look at the region itself and the countries that surround um, Niger, um, Bazoum took power a what? two years ago, um, uh, and with military, crew, military coups happening around the region, the fallout of uh, Libya's civil war, uh, coups in Mali and Burkina Faso, even, even Chad, very unstable. These were all external security challenges that his country had to deal with. But there were ev internal ones too, but were they that evident? Nicholas. Um, it's hard to, to see whether they had got to that kind of um, level. The, the handover between Isisu and Bazoum was held up at the time as being uh, a real breakthrough for the region. Um, at the time, there was a lot of attempts to rewrite constitutions in many Sahel countries to allow a third term for presidential uh, people in the presidency. Um, and Niger's uh, Isufu said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go on forever. I've had my two terms. I'm even going to designate who I would like uh, in my party to succeed me, my defense minister, uh, Bazoum. Um, and so when that handover went over relatively uh, well, a lot of people were, were, were pretty, in, pretty heartened for the region. I'll tell you something else which happened in 2021, and quickly. that was the death, sorry, the death of President Idris Deby, who yeah. had been the France's gendarme for security in the region, doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Niger was the only one today, since that uh, has turned in on itself, Niger is the only one doing that role. So now there are huge question marks. Kabir, let's uh, bring you back in here from Abuja. Let's talk about security and move the conversation on now. We've got a good sense of what's going on in Niger. Um, we, we're seeing Western forces being pulled out uh, of, of countries, security partners in Mali, for example. The U.S. is, you might even say, on the back foot. So is France dealing with uh, the insurgencies across the Sahel and trying to help its African friends. We're seeing Russia come in as an alternative to the failures of various military operations. How do you assess the situation right now in terms of the importance of Niger, where the U.S. and France do have troops? So um, the geopolitics of, um, I mean, the Western nations is playing out in Africa uh, in, in very clear terms. Um, and sadly, we're seeing both state institutions and non-state actors. Uh, Wagner has been mentioned severally, and even in the Nigerian coup, um, there has been suggestion that there are actors at play that may be affiliated with some of these countries. And um, if, if I'm going to give a prognosis, this, this is likely to be the scenario over the next few years. Um, there has also been suggestion that perhaps because of the attention of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that type of um, you know, interest has dwindled um, from a geostrategic point in, in, in Africa, especially the Sahel region, where the two uh, global um, um, uh, terrorist hmm. um, uh, you know, um, affiliates have been growing, that IS and, and Al-Qaeda. And so it, it's this type of in, in, in impact and consequence on security that we're seeing over time. But at the top of all of this, the umbrella that ties all of this is good governance and its um, lack of it within, within the region. 
um, so much has happened institutionally and structurally that has a- allowed um, this type of development that that leads to coup. And I think, sadly, both the multilateral, regional, and global institutions, ECO, we've discussed ECO as um, AU as well, do not speak enough around good governance. The, 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 the lack of, um, you know, care review and then uh, action to, uh, to disallow leaders who sadly are not serving enough of their people, I think allows this type of um, you know, development like what we're discussing in Niger. Okay, well, let me go back to Alex Vines in London, because there seems to be an opportunity here, Alex, you know, while uh, Niger is in flux. Uh, and Wagner and uh, uh, Russia, as well as uh, the U.S. and France, you know, vie for security supremacy in helping their African partners. There is a conference going on right now in St. Petersburg between Russia uh, and African nations. And I, and I can't help but think that they will be discussing this behind closed doors. Is this an opportunity for President Putin? Well, we'll see. Um, so I, re- uh, I received a, a Twitter photo, or X photo, as it's called now, of Mr. Prashogin, you know, the, 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 the chief of Wagner, meeting yeah. a, a particular ambassador in St. Petersburg as part of a fringe meeting. And, and you know, Putschist uh, leaders are, are invo- invited in St. Petersburg. So, you know, you've got uh, the, the, the Burkina Faso and, uh, and Mali represented there, the president of, uh, of, of Guinea-Bissau is there and so on. Uh, and so clearly, the, the, the Russians are always looking for opportunity. And Mr. Prishogin, um has, has announced that he, he will focus, continue to focus on Africa. And he's clearly doing that today in St. Petersburg. Now, whether the, 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 the incoming military uh, putschists in, 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 in uh, Niamey uh, will reach out to Russia, um, let's see. But they'll certainly find that the Russians are knocking on their door the Russians were knocking very loudly on the door of the, the, the junta in Ouagadougou, the, the, the Burkina Faso uh, junta. Uh, but up to now, the, 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 that junta has said, no, thank you. We, we don't want uh, Russia to be involved with us. We are coming very closely to the end of our program. Nicholas Norbrook, just briefly, I mean, there is such a thing as civil society in most countries. And one assumes that there is such a society in uh, Niger too, who tried to support the president and, and faced gunfire. Where do you think the public stand now in Niger? And is there a voice or has it been silenced? Um, I, I don't think there is the size of middle class that you see in Sudan. And so you wouldn't get something akin to the resistance committees that have been so effective uh, in Sudan. Uh, but as you could see from the pictures yesterday, there were crowds who came out immediately in support of the president, who are not keen on seeing their country being dragged down the direction of their neighbor, neighbors. Um, and while there may have been a few Russian flags seen in, in some of the crowds yesterday, um, we're relatively sure that that is opportunistic and doesn't uh, indicate some kind of groundswell. Um, it, it should be said that since February, um, Prigozhin's uh, laughter uh, project, mm-hmm. which is a big uh, uh, disinformation on social media project run by uh, Prigozhin's uh, companies, um, that has already been spreading since February uh, misinformation in, in Niger. Um, so this is something which is absolutely on the radar of, of Moscow, and I'd be very surprised if they weren't going to try and at least take advantage of, uh, of events. 
Indeed, it's a fast-moving story and one that is still developing even as we speak. I'd like to thank all of my guests uh, for joining me on this edition of Inside Story to Kabir Adamo, Nicholas Norbrook and Alex Vines. And thank you too as well for watching. You can see the programme again anytime by visiting our website at aljazeera.com and for further discussion go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Now you can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle there is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Sahil Rahman and the Inside Story team, thanks very much for your time and your company. Welcome back. And uh, you're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And, of course, uh, today is uh, Saturday, July the 29th, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again to uh, yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to, of course, uh, follow through uh, and follow up uh, on uh, the stories that have been covered uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Journal uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go uh, to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, and that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash Pan-African Journal. And also you can go to the Pan-African Newswire at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program uh, for uh, this week. And of course, uh, this program is uh, brought to you on a weekly basis uh, here at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. And uh, we're going to take a, a musical break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program. Also, uh, we wanted to mention that uh, the situation uh, in Niger is being covered extensively uh, over the Pan-African Newswire, so just log on for more information. Start time at the Regal. Young man went out and made a name for himself. He's been on every record-breaking show in the Regal Theater in the last two years. Ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show, how about a nice warm round of applause to welcome Mr. Gene Chandler. Thank you so very much.
Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, July 29th, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now we want to go and give you some details on the recently held Africa-Russia Summit in St. Petersburg. Uh, let's listen in. What can Russia offer Africa? Vladimir Putin is hosting leaders from the continent, promising aid and lashing out at the West. But with his country at war, isolated and under sanctions, how much can he deliver? This is Inside Story. Welcome to the program. I'm Cyril Vanier. African leaders are in Russia for an economic forum hosted by President Vladimir Putin. Moscow says it wants to bring Africa closer, but in a polarized world after the war in Ukraine, that's not an easy task. Seventeen leaders attended this second Russia-Africa summit, less than half the number of the first summit back in 2019. The collapse of the Black Sea deal on Ukrainian grain exports is causing concern in Africa about rising food prices and shortages. So can Vladimir Putin reassure Africans that he is a reliable partner? And do African countries risk being caught in the middle of the crisis between Russia and the West? We'll get to our guests in a moment. First, though, this report from Victoria Gatenby. Russian President Vladimir Putin center stage at an economic forum for African leaders in St. Petersburg. It's being held at a time when Russia is at war and under sanctions, and many African countries face rising food prices and shortages as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Putin has promised to supply a small amount of free grain to six African countries. Russia's share of the global wheat market is 20%. Ukraine's is less than 5%. This means it is Russia that is making a significant contribution to global food security. African nations depend on grain imports from Black Sea ports, but last week Moscow withdrew from a UN-brokered deal that ensured safe passage of millions of tons of grain from Ukraine, which was helping to prevent food shortages in Africa. Analysts say this summit is an opportunity for African leaders to lobby Putin. For Africans there, I think um, ensuring that they, remain, they retain access to grain is going to be a big part. But secondly, that there is some sort of movement on the part of Russia suing for peace because the continual war in Ukraine is having second effect, um, second order effect in Africa. But this summit is about far more than grain. Russia exported more than $16 billion worth of goods to Africa last year, and it's one of the biggest exporters of arms to the continent. Russia spends around $2 billion on African imports annually, mostly fruit and vegetables, nuts and minerals. Russia wants closer relations with Africa, but in a polarized world following the war in Ukraine, that isn't easy to achieve. Only 17 leaders attended this second Russia-Africa summit, less than half the number at the first summit in 2019. We need to negotiate very wisely the collaboration with Russia. We don't want to change one colonizer by another. We need to have a fair connection, fair collaboration, and we need to be clear about all the goals we have. Many African leaders attending the summit are also cautious not to risk their ties with the West. It's a difficult balancing act during a time of global instability. Victoria Gatenby for Inside Story. 
Let's bring in our guests in Moscow, Viktor Olevich, lead expert at the think tank Center for Actual Politics. In Luxembourg, Eric Asha, executive director of the African Policy Forum. And in Nairobi, Abdulwahab Sheikh Abdisamad, chairman of the Horn of Africa Institute for Strategic Studies. A warm welcome to all of you gentlemen. To start off this discussion, I want to ask the following question. What's in it for Russia and what's in it for Africa. So, Victor, why don't you take the first one? What's in it for Russia when it comes to this Russia-Africa summit? Well, Russia is facing a massive attempt to isolate it by the collective West, by the United States, its European and some other allies. And, of course, uh, Russia is seeking to break through those attempts at isolation and to maintain and expand its economic political, military, uh, humanitarian, and other relations with partners in Africa, in Latin America, in, middle, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, and other regions of the world. Of course, Russia has had, traditionally has had, extensive relations with uh, African countries and with uh, some African political movements uh, when, uh, when uh, the United States uh, labeled Nelson Mandela, the head of the African National Congress, a terrorist, used to label him a terrorist in the early 80s. It was the Soviet Union that supported him and supported uh, the anti-apartheid uh, movements in uh, South Africa and in some other, in, in uh, what used to be Rhodesia, in some other parts of Africa. Mm. And so this competition uh, this political competition and economic competition in Africa between uh, Russia, the United States, and its European allies, and uh, China, some other, uh, some other world players, uh, this competition is, uh, is uh, expanding, and Russia wants, uh, wants to play a leading part in, uh, in uh, uh, supporting and uh, uh, helping uh, African states develop economically and uh, in other ways. So uh, from, okay. uh, from what the perspective of what Russia can do for Africa, uh, Russia has just written off $23 billion in, uh, in debt to African countries. That's about 90% of the debt that African countries had. Uh, so Sorry, what was the percentage there? I missed that number. That it, it's what percentage of the African Russia debt? That's uh, 20, 20, 23 billion has been written off right now in debt to various African countries. That's about 90% of all the uh, African debt to, to Russia. So, so Russia has just wiped out most of the debt that was owed by various African countries to Russia. That's a very significant economic step, and it, uh, it, it's going to be taken positively in a number of African uh, capitals. Uh, also, uh, it's important to note that Russia and Victor, has I'd like to, I'd like provided to bring, medical assistance during the Ebola epidemic. Mm -hmm. I'd like to bring Abdul Wahab into this conversation. And by the way, the, this number, the, the 90% of African debt towards Russia has been, uh, has been wiped out. I, I can't fact check it right now, um, but I think it, it certainly deserves to be looked into. Uh, Abdul Wahab, I, I need to ask you the question then. What's in this summit for Africa? Um, Africa became a battleground for East and West, specifically Western countries and uh, China and Russia on the other side. Africa is not Africa of the 1970s, 1980s, or late 1990s. 
Africa is awake right now. They are going to balance between the power of the West and power of the Russia and China as well. When the British form, Africa, they realize that multipolar system now is real. So they want, they, want to, they want to show the world, they want to balance the power of East and West. That's why Russia today is hosting more than 17 countries of Africa, so that they are going to revive historically, you know, relationship between the Soviet Union and Africa. If you remember well, early, 1970, early 1960s, the Soviet Union has assisted the African liberation, you know, movement in Africa, specifically Southern Africa, Mozambique, Angola, you know, South Africa, Somalia, yani Zimbabwe. You mentioned it. They are going to start to revive those issues. South Africa today, they, uh, you know, they are willing more than ever to invest in Africa, to revive its historical relationship. That's exactly what Russia now is, is up to. As we speak right now, they, in fact, they, they just, you know, write off more than 20 billion, you know, or, or death of Africa. In addition mm. to that, Russia now, they are, they are going to deliver almost 25, 50, 50 million tons of the grain to the poorest African states like Somalia, Eritrea, Central African Republic, Zimbabwe, Mali, Burkina Faso, and others. That's exactly they are going to revive. They, they are going to revive the investment. They are, so, Abdi they are Wahab, do you Africa more than ever? So, Abdi Wahab, do you believe those Russian promises of supplying more grain? And the reason I ask you this, and the the, the reason um, I think it might be worth some of our viewers. Uh, raising questions uh, about this promise is that last time Russia made a promise at this summit, the first edition of this summit was in 2019, Russia said we're going to double our trade uh, with African countries over to $40 billion a year, and that hasn't happened. They haven't even reached half that level. So I understand that Russia says it's going to provide more grain, but do you believe that promise? I think so. This time around, Russia is very serious, like, like, no, no, like, like no other. To be honest with you, Russia, they are really do, going to assist African, African society. They promise this time around, they have to deliver whatever they promise at the summit. And this time they are serious, to, you know, delivering what they call the promise they made. And up to now, they are, they are willing to deliver more than 50 million tons of grains to the poorest country in Africa. They want to also invest in African society. They want, in fact, to relieve the debt of Africa so that they, they, they want to, to see, uh, you know, Russia as an equal partner, not a colonizer. If you look at the Western world, to be honest with you, for the last six years of African, African independence, what they, what, what they promised only, what they're doing in Africa only, uh, you know, humanitarian aid and also, you know, security issues and some, you know, and a cultural colonization, just embossing those cultures you know, against African values and cultures, and such as the gays and the lesbianism and so on and so forth. And that's exactly what Africa, they don't want it. Africa, what they want is a good governance. They don't want what they call a shady democracy. In addition to that, what Africa today is looking for is a good governance. You know, for instance, Gulfing stages, there is no democracy, there is a good governance. So now the China and the Russia, they are willing to build Africa. They are, in fact, investing in infrastructure, service sector, industry sector, agriculture sector. So they want to see this time around, they don't have lip services. Africa is awake. It's not Africa of 1970 or 1980 mm. or 1990. Africa, they want 
someone who can convert his energy and commitment into resources without entertaining what they call a rhetoric, you know, speeches. Africa doesn't entertain that. Africa, they want a development. They mean business. If you mean business, come to Africa. But, you mm -hmm. know, the issue of the Western, Western world, just, you know, you know, lecturing and dictating Africa is over. It's over. It's a part of the thing. They, they will not exist anymore. Eric, let me bring you in. Victor and Abdul Wahab have essentially telling us this is a win-win. It's a win for Russia. It's a win for Africa. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, um, I, I would like to have a different view from what the, uh, my previous um, panelists just mentioned there, because if we look at where this is all coming from, given all what is happening in the world today and the conflict itself, um, we should be extremely very, very cautious with all the promises coming out from the Russia or coming from the Kremlin. Because as you mentioned, or as you intercepted when the previous speaker was talking, promises were made back during the first um, African-Russian summit in 2019. We haven't seen anything coming out from there. So I do not see why anyone would want to believe that today or the promises being made by Russia today will be fulfilled tomorrow. And we would also see, especially this aspect of the grain, which Russia seems to be playing on. And unfortunately, many of these African leaders are falling for it. If we see the timing where Russia decided to disrupt the UN brokered Ukrainian um, grain deal that was ongoing, it tells you that he would, or he, he, Russia had intentions to use the grain as a, as a tool to, to lose some of these African leaders into dancing to into the tune which they want. Now, uh, who is in Russia today or who is attending this summit today also says a lot. If we say from all the 50 plus nations in Africa today, we have just a handful, 17 um, head of state or 17 countries being represented there, tells you that this isn't going as planned from the um, Russian perspective. Because if we look at those attend in attendance, um, other than countries like Egypt or South Africa that have a more business or organizational tie with Russia through their BRICS relationship, you would then tend to see countries like um, uh, Burkina Faso, Mali, or Guinea, or Sudan, all military leaders who have been sidelined by the rest of the world, given the way they all came to power. Now they know that their only other option or their only other good friend who may smile and, and embrace them in Rome is Russia. And that is why they hurriedly took their flights and landed in Moscow today to mm. attend what many have criticized and continue to criticize. Um, I do not really see this um, summit as a win-win as the previous analysis presenting because Russia has every good reason to make the gains on this profit and what they have in return to offer the African leaders who are there are simple empty promises, I would say. Okay, so Victor, over to you. What do you make of this attendance that's in free fall? You know, as uh, Eric was reminding us, and as we said at the top of the show, the last time they held this summit, Russia had 40 plus African leaders, and now they have less than half of that. What does that tell us? What do you infer from that? Uh, well, first of all, to clarify the uh, debt, uh, forgiveness that uh, it's not overall to Africa, 90% has been written off, but to, uh, to some African countries. Uh, and uh, as far as attendance, obviously uh, the United States and uh, uh, some of its European allies have applied tremendous, tremendous pressure 
on African capitals to have the level of presence uh, and participation in this summit lowered. But at the same time, key players have been in attendance, the pres presidents of Egypt and South Africa, the presidents of Zimbabwe, the prime ministers of Algeria and Libya, even the prime minister of Morocco, uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, although Rabat has been uh, an ally of uh, the United States for, for a very long time. Uh, the president of Uganda has been in attendance. So it's not surprising that the uh, attendance has dropped since the last Russia-Africa summit took place in uh, 2019 because geopolitical tensions have risen. The conflict between Russia on one side and the West on the other side has become more complicated and more intense. And uh, the pressure on various African states to uh, attend or not attend uh, has also intensified. Of course, African states are interested in, the, the, in their own development. And mm. just as, uh, as um, it was true in the last Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States uh, that lasted for 40 years, from the late, from 40s to the late 80s, the African states, just like other parts of the Global South, have been interested in effectively using the confrontation between uh, the West and, uh, and Russia for their own economic benefit. That's, uh, it's a logical uh, and uh, justified approach uh, to keep relations with uh, various centers of power, mm. whether it's Russia, whether it's China, the United States, India, Japan, and others who are able to provide assistance and to provide uh, and, and to uh, maintain healthy uh, economic and other political and other relations. Victor, can you pause so, there for a quick uh, second? Uh, can Russia you pause for a quick second? How does it how does it actually move the needle? I completely understand on a macro level when you say it's important for a country like Russia to want to break its isolation, nurture partnerships with other countries. I get that intuitively. I think everybody gets that. How does it actually move the needle when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war and to Russia's most pressing issues? sanctions relief, all of those things. What benefit do they get from, being a, from having that diplomatic pull, that they can bring in those African leaders, that they can talk to them, that they can host all of them for a summit? What difference does it make? Well, the United States and some of its European allies are attempting to create a media picture in which uh, everyone in the world, all, uh, the international community as a whole, is against Russia. But that is simply not correct, and Russia is interested in showing that it is not, uh, it is not uh, correct and that there are a number of uh, partners and allies around the world, including in Africa, that are willing and, uh, and, uh, to, to keep their relations with Russia intact and maintain and expand cooperation with Russia uh, in economic, political, military, and other spheres. Mm. Uh, it's also important for Russia how... Uh, various uh, African countries vote at the, in the United Nations and in other international forums. It's also important what positions they take concerning the uh, war, the military conflict in Ukraine. And um, uh, as far as the grain deal, well, Russia was also interested when it signed the grain deal in keeping the grain deal intact, and Russia was interested in the grain deal working. It, in fact, it was being extended uh, every couple months. But uh, the Russia's, Moscow's position on this is that the Western countries 
refused to abide by their side uh, of the deal, refused to uh, reconnect Russia's agricultural bank to SWIFT to have transactions for Russia's fertilizers, ammonia, and other products being exported too. There, there were two sides to the green deal. One side was Ukraine being able to export its grain, but the other side was uh, Russia being able to export its agricultural products, fertilizer, uh, and other products uh, as well. So Russia was not uh, felt and had warned for many months that unless its interests would be taken into account, the Green Deal at some point would, uh, would be abrogated. And unfortunately, unfortunately okay. for everyone, it has been abrogated. And at this point, it's a question of re renegotiating a new Green Deal or uh, supplying uh, the poorest states of Africa and some states in the Middle East with, uh, with grain uh, separately, uh, not, uh, not through the grain deal that was, uh, that's not, no longer valid anymore. Abdel Wahab, what kind of support do you think African nations can provide to Russia? And is it in their interest? And to be uh, to precisely, you know, Africa, they are going to balance the Western East, as I told you before. You know, multipolar system now is real. So Africa and Russia, they are going to have a mutual, you know, partnership, you know, mutual, mutual respect. And in fact, you know, in Russia, they are willing to invest Africa in terms of what they call education, health healthcare system, and the infrastructure, surface sector. To some extent, the agriculture sector, they are going to assist African society. In addition to that, in one of the issues right now, you know, that some was addressing is, and Russia also equally has to open this market to African products so that they can easily, you know, penetrate the Russian market as well. So since uh, the practice was formed just a you know, couple, couple of years ago, you know, some, some years back, and in fact what's good for the South is Africa to balance you know, the, the precarious, you know, member, member status and, mm -hmm. and Western member status. The problem is what is going, what's going on in Ukraine is just a proxy war. We have nothing to do with that. And if, if, if the proxy war is between Russia and NATO, that's up to them. Africa only, they are going to mediate a peaceful resolution of Ukraine crisis. If they're willing to do so, are, we are, are they Africa is ready to mediate them. That's but, why Ramfosa and other... If, if they want to... Me, if they want to mediate between Russia and then Ukraine, that's why the Ramaphosa, other African states, they wanted there at least to ease the tension between Russia and Ukraine as well. But, uh, but unfortunately, and, what's sorry, going just on a, Just a quick it's pause on that. So just Africa a quick pause on that, Abdul Wahab. You're right that a month ago there was a delegation led by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa uh, to try and mediate um, a, it's not a full-fledged peace plan, but to try and mediate an easing of tensions between Ukraine and Russia. And when they landed in Kyiv on the first leg of their trip, uh, the Kremlin pounded Kyiv at the time with uh, air attacks. I, I, and what came out of that trip, it's very unclear that it really moved the needle in any significant way. You know what, what African, you know what the South African spokesperson said, he never had anything on kind of that. That's exactly what they said, the African, the African delegation in, in Ukraine. So in, in other words, what we mean is, if they are willing to negotiate between, uh, you know, if it, you can, Africa can facilitate, in other words, the, the, the tension between Ukraine and, and Russia, if both countries are willing, are willing for. But, you know, the question is, 
What we are avoiding for is what you call a proxy war. Africa, they don't want to be, to be in the middle of the proxy war. That's exactly Africa, they want to benefit both sides, both West and also the Russian-China alliance or BRICS alliance. That's exactly we are going to palace it so that Africa can gain a lot from both sides. Mm. But, you know, the, the problem is Africa, they don't want to be in the middle of the crisis. They want to, to, they want to be in the middle of the, what they call a proxy war between the East and West. That's exactly what Africa is avoiding, avoiding for. Eric, this notion that Africa sort of needs to balance both sides, Western partners along with Russia, so that it isn't just a victim of this crisis, what do you think of that? Um, my views on that, I, I would say, let, let, let me quickly interject this aspect here that we seem to be in a situation of the Cold War, a thing my previous, our previous panelists mentioned that, I just want to reemphasize that fact that the situation we are seeing today, given the position of Africa and the ongoing conflict, is not so very different from the Cold War era. And um, I wouldn't shy to say that Africa somehow is fast becoming a victim of this war, a war that has nothing to do with Africa, but as history has always been the case, it's repeating itself, um, Africa is turning out to be the victim. And what we've been cautioning and advising some of those we talk with is that it's um, an opportunity, a once-in-a-time opportunity that um, puts Africa in a position where if they leverage well, depending on how they go about it, they could benefit from the current situation. But should they um, embark on the wrong approach, which I'm afraid seems to be more likely, it will backfire and the ramifications will be enormous. Because how Africa benefits from this or how or where, where the relationship between Africa and Russia ends up today will depend on how this war in Ukraine ends. If it ends well from, for Russia, then those who were on the side of Russia will benefit or maybe South Africa will benefit. If Russia is defeated, I mean, if they come or if they are weakened, then the future, I would say, may be very, very grim. And if you allow me here to bring an aspect which I've also been trying to, to, to put out there, that the situation we are faced with in Africa today where you have countries alienating or trying to lean towards Russia is purely based on a void that was created or that has been created over the years by the Western countries because we have a plethora of conflicts going on across Africa, and the Western countries haven't done what is expected of them to help or, or, or attempt in, in resolving them the way one would expect. And therefore, people in those countries say, all right, if we believe that we're in an era where democracy was being preached as the future and development was our agenda, but the Western countries that have colonized Africa over the years, they've been present here over the years, are not helping us. They are not doing what they need to do to help resolve this conflict or take us out of these challenges. We may be All better right. leading towards Russia and, and, see, and see what comes out of it. And then you mentioned something about what Africa, Africa can do for Russia. The, the, the team that was led by Ramaphosa and the Egyptian head of state to Russia to go help mediate the conflict was a pure, it was pure hypocrisy. It was, it was a sham because there was no way that African leaders right. in Africa 
had dozens of conflicts around them, they tiptoed across those conflicts to go and pretend resolving a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which was far, far more than them to do. So it's something which has been criticized and will be criticized today in the yeah, future. We're running out of time. Eric, thank you so much. I want to thank all our guests today. Victor Olevich, Eric Acha, and Abdi Wahab Sheikh Abdisaman. That's all the time we have today for today. Thank you, too, for watching. And you can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter, our handle, at AJ Inside Story. From me, Cyril Vanier, and the entire team here in Doha, bye for now. Welcome back, and uh, that was a debate on uh, the Russia-Africa Summit, uh, which we have been covering uh, on a daily basis at uh, the Pan-African Newswire. We're going to close out this program uh, with a reflection on the African-American civil rights struggle of 60 years ago. 1963 constituted a high point in the struggle uh, for civil rights, voting rights, and for African-American empowerment. Let's listen to this report on developments uh, 60 years ago in 1963. Beyond public benefits to private advancement, jobs and housing. The North is often guilty of assuming moral superiority over the South because the North allows the Negro his public benefits. But when the Negro attempts private advancement, the self-righteousness of the North is frequently exposed. It is evident everywhere. Three times in 12 years, it has led to violence in Chicago. The Englewood District, where the latest violence took place, is on Chicago's south side, along the edge of an area which has uh, seen an enlargement in the Negro population over the past 20 years. The line of demarcation between black and white, sometimes called the wall, presently runs along the railroad tracks, which bound the community on the south and west. Inside this barrier resides a predominantly lower middle-class population, fiercely determined to maintain the present character of their neighborhood. The 30 apartment building, 30 apartments in the building, 14 of which were vacant, and the uh, landlord had leased and rented apartments to this Negro family, and, and the result of this, the tension has grown in the area. Groups have been gathering every night. There have been disturbances, disorderly conduct. Policemen have been assaulted. It was Chicago's worst racial disturbance in more than a decade. Why did it happen? Strangely enough, the reasons are always the same. Distrust, unfamiliarity, fear, bigotry, often encouraged by profiteers. Similar thoughts run through the minds of people all over the United States. Exerting political power, the classic means of advancement for minorities in America, apparently seems too slow a method to most of those waging this struggle. But their political power is increasing, both as voters and as holders of public office. This can be seen in Massachusetts. The highest elected Negro public servant in the United States is the Attorney General there. Brooks speaks as a Negro who must appeal to every I kind of voter. A Negro, if he aspires to high elective office, must remember that he represents all of the people, not just the Negro people, but the white people, all of the different creeds, and that he must campaign on the issues pertaining to his particular office. 
I did so campaign in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I talked about the ills of Massachusetts government. I talked to people up and down the Commonwealth. I listened to their problems of housing and education and, and feeding and clothing, and I directed my campaign towards them. I think when this is done, that the white community will accept a man, regardless of his race or creed, to elective office, and I think that my election has proved this. Congressman William Dawson, for a time the most powerful Negro politician in the country, is an old-style political boss. His power base is an efficient machine on Chicago's south side, a district which is 99% Negro and economically depressed. From this slum area, Dawson can command margins of 100,000 Democratic votes, enough to carry the state of Illinois. Dawson has never been a race leader. Like many congressmen, he has accommodated to the rules of the club and has enjoyed harmonious working relations even with colleagues from the Deep South. Behind the scenes in Washington, Negroes today play an important role in the formulation of administration policy. A deputy chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Louis Martin, feels strongly that the new Negro in politics must be a decision maker. I think they uh, unquestionably will be decision makers. They are now in many instances. Uh, I must point out that in the Kennedy administration, the Negroes who have been given big appointments, like Dr. Robert Weaver, the head of the Housing Authority, is a decision maker. Incidentally, his office, uh, of course, uh, is not a uh, racial office. It's uh, the whole national housing effort. Uh, these are not token jobs. These are jobs where they have a real responsibility for carrying out uh, the oaths of their office, uh, and I think they are expected to live up to them in terms of all the people. In New York City, the leader of the Carver Democratic Club is Councilman J. Raymond Jones, sometimes called the Fox, considered by many as the most powerful Negro politician in New York State. Jones is a conscious race leader with strong convictions about the importance of economics in the Negro Revolution. As a political leader and as councilman, I see the role of the Negro politician as one working in the area of government, in the area of law, to produce those forces uh, that will react on the economy of the country to the extent that big business will begin to realize that they too have a part to play in this revolution. According to the Muslims, the white man is the devil, the source of all evil. He hates black men, and black men should hate him in return. Those are the basic teachings of Elijah Muhammad, the Muslim prophet. He also teaches his followers, about 75,000 all told, that Christianity has failed black men. The American government has failed black men. The Muslim solution? a separate black state. Free you from anything, and Negroes don't know the truth. You find the Negro getting drunk, he doesn't know the truth. You find the Negro taking dope, he doesn't know the truth. You find the Negro lying and cheating, he doesn't know the truth. He's usually imitating the white man. Negroes get drunk because they see white people get drunk. They smoke cigarettes because they see white people smoke cigarettes. They commit fornication and adultery because when they turn on the television, all they see is a white man committing fornication and adultery. So, and they want to be like the white man, so they copy his immoral social habits. And the Honorable Elijah Muhammad comes along and teaches black people the uh, glory of black. And the sort of the black man then trying to imitate the white man, he tries to imitate God. He tries to be himself. And he tries to display high moral uh, qualities rather than the low moral qualities. 
Right after World War I, a Negro leader named Marcus Garvey organized an ill-fated campaign based on the same principle. One of many men who opposed that movement, Philip Randolph, recalls conditions that led hundreds of thousands of Negroes to join the Garvey Parade. They had come out of the war where they had fought and died and come into the southern communities where they met a violent racial discrimination. Many soldiers were the victims of police brutality. Some were lynched. And therefore, there was widespread frustration and discord and discontent among Negroes. Garvey came along with his doctrine of back to Africa, and he painted glowing pictures of what Negroes could do were they to migrate to Africa, how they could build uh, great enterprises and things of that sort. And this caught the interest and the uh, imagination of the Negro, and many of them flocked into the Garvey movement. It's feared by some whites that the Muslims advocate violence, but that's not exactly the case. They say they don't believe in starting a fight, but if white men mistreat them, they won't turn the other cheek. That brand of militancy has forced other Negro leaders to become more aggressive. It's the implied threat of increasing Muslim power that makes some whites more willing to negotiate with the so-called moderate groups. To that extent, the black Muslims are making a major contribution to the drive for equal rights. This is the construction site of the Union County Courthouse Annex in Elizabeth, New Jersey. The demonstrators are protesting the fact that few Negroes have been admitted to the building trade union. By their reckoning, Negroes have a right to more jobs on public projects such as this one because the money comes from tax dollars out of their pockets as well as the pockets of whites. This demonstration actually began before sunrise. At 6 a.m., only one picket was present having been there all night long. He described his makeshift bed as uncomfortable, but police called it unlawful. What made you decide to sleep here tonight? Well, I feel like that I'm a Negro and uh, that uh, we are striving for equal rights, uh, for opportunity, for jobs, and uh, more security for our young people, our race, our children that are coming up in life and uh, better schooling. I feel like we're entitled to it. And we have one foot in the door now, and it's no time to stop. Eventually, other demonstrators began arriving in small groups. They gathered at a nearby Negro Baptist church across the street from the project. Inside, clergymen conducted a sort of pep rally for pickets, complete with songs and chants. They also told the demonstrators how to go about avoiding trouble and maintaining order at all costs. But once outside the church, it didn't take long for things to get out of hand.
watch demonstrations like this one, a number of questions come to mind about the ideas and emotions of the people involved. One way to look for the answers is to put yourself on the picket line. I guess the first thing that strikes you is an awareness of pride, tremendous pride. You sense it in all the people around you. Courage, too. It may not be much, but it is a personal effort. The strangest part about it is everybody here keeps going. Every one of them must know, deep down, there's very little chance that what they want will be given anytime soon. It's something like swimming out to sea, no end in sight, no signs to tell you how much farther you have to go. So you just keep going, one stroke or one step at a time, hoping. Maybe somewhere, sometime, a wise man will figure out a better way, an easier way of fighting back. I'll bet a lot of people here would like that. After a while, your feet start hurting. You get tired. You get bored. You start thinking about all the other places, all the other things you'd rather be doing right now. But they stay because they're part of something. Maybe the most important something of their whole lives. That doesn't mean they're friends or even that they know each other. It goes much deeper than that. I'd say it's a kind of kinship, the kind that comes from sharing the same foxhole. Come to think of it, this thing could be just about as dangerous as a foxhole. Another one of those free-for-alls might break out at any moment. I'll bet that's them. Suppose the guy next... In the North, the Negro has his consumer rights and the vote, but he joins in the demand for an education. Then, what would you do? Suppose the policeman slugs you. Well, one thing's for sure, there's no comfort in thinking about it. But as you walk along, you pick up a sense of determination, even stubbornness, all around you. And you can tell that if trouble does come again, not one person will run away. The fight for more jobs is still going on in many cities, including Brooklyn. They march, sit, or lie down to dramatize their demands, and some get carried away. demonstrations, and others just like them, have sparked action on a number of fronts to lessen job bias. In addition, some employment gains are being made through boycotts or selective buying campaigns. It's expected, in fact, that the economic boycott will soon replace demonstrations as the primary weapon in the fight. This threat already has led... Welcome back. And uh, those were excerpts uh, from news reports uh, from 1963. Uh, where we're looking back on the African-American struggle some six uh, decades later. 
And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Uh, this is going to conclude the Pan-African Journal, our worldwide radio broadcast, and our audio um, Pan-African Newswire. And, of course, uh, you can have access to this program uh, by logging on to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And we're going to close out our program uh, with uh, the jazz great Gene Ammons. And uh, this is from a 1958 uh, recording entitled Blue Jean. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 